Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall. And we are joined today by CMU Assistant Professor of Art, Animation, and Digital Filmmaking, Evan Curtis. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. So you have quite a story. You kind of went all over the place doing um, a few different things before you landed here. Can you give us a little background on who you are and um, your story? Yes, I am a stop-motion animator from upstate New York in the Adirondacks, uh, which is close to the Canadian border. And I studied film down in New York City. And then after New York City, I moved to Montana to be a uh, Conservation Corps trail crew leader for the Montana Conservation Corps, uh, taking teenagers and at-risk youth out into the wilderness and the national parks and state parks and BLM land, building trails for hiking, biking, ATVs, and horseback riding. After that, I moved back to uh, the East Coast, went to SCAD Atlanta to get an MFA in animation, and then again went back to the conservation world doing trail crew in the Adirondacks from where I'm from because I wanted to get back to to that environment and that community that I grew up in. Uh, And ever since having lived in Montana and and doing road trips across the country, uh, at that time I was with my girlfriend who is now my wife, we both felt like we wanted to be out west. Uh, So we moved out to New Mexico where I started teaching and then moved to Cortez, Colorado, Utah, and now back to Grand Junction, Colorado to teach here at CMU. I love that you've been all over the country. And I I like that juxtaposition to me, at least of, you know, leading these outdoor trips and these at-risk youth and then also being involved in filmmaking and clay animation and all of that good stuff too. I like, I like the juxtaposition of that. So what was it for you that got you into films and stop motion? What was it where you're like, this is what I want to pursue and what I want to do? Yeah. Uh, one of those was just growing up in the late eighties and nineties. Uh, I loved toys and action figures. And to me, stop motion animation was just an extension of using those action figures. Uh, And I just always watched films. I loved films. I would always go to the library or the video store and just check out movies on a regular basis, watch them on my own or watch them with friends or family. Uh, So that was just always a big part of my life. And then I started to combine it with my love of the outdoors as well and make films in those locations and shoot animation on location. I love that. So you mentioned stop motion. We've talked about animation. So for those listeners maybe that aren't as familiar with these types of films, can you break down for us real quick the live stop motion animation? What's the differences and and maybe why you, it seems, tend to um, really have a passion for stop motion? Sure. Stop motion animation is where you take physical objects, photograph them frame by frame, and then sequence those photographs into a playable movie. Examples of that would be the Gumby Show, Robot Chicken, uh, or the old Ray Harryhausen movies from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, like the original Clash of the Titans is stop motion. Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas is stop motion. Um, And live action would just be your traditional live action movie with real humans in it and characters. And what I liked about combining both of those uh, into this one medium is that stop motion was very physical. It was tangible. It was something that you could work with, such as physical light. So when I'm shooting on location, 
I'm using real natural light from the sun, or I'm setting up lights in my studio to shoot. But I just liked how physical of a medium it is because I, I also used to be an athlete. And when I was studying animation in Atlanta, the dominant animation technique in the industry was 3D. It still kind of is 3D animation or computer animation when it comes to feature films in the giant American studios such as Pixar and Disney. Uh, and I just realized going from stop motion where I was able to, you know, film in lakes and rivers and crawl around in the mud and go out hiking and bring my characters with me and make these films to sitting in front of a computer screen all day long. I just knew this was not what I was going to do. Um, and even as an undergrad, I had interned on Horton Hears a Who at Blue Sky Studios, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore because Disney bought them and then got rid of them. Um, and so that was kind of my first experience into that world. And I just thought, I don't want to sit at a desk all day long. I want to get back out. So I've continued with stop motion. Well, it's interesting because you're, I feel like you're anybody who's seen the work that you've done, your love for film and your love for the outdoors kind of mix in this really unique way. Can you talk about the work that you've done and how these two worlds collide? Yeah. So I've started thinking in terms of or thinking of my work in terms of it being site specific so wherever i end up living I, I like to produce a film in those environments in those locations that i'm exploring so for example when i lived in utah i made a film called saturn return which is a sci-fi film uh, about a character that goes back to this planet and finds this little oasis growing in a giant skeleton kind of uh, i guess symbolic of the phrase you know standing on the shoulders of giants that this oasis is is forming inside this giant ruin of uh, of a being and i shot that in the little sahara sand dunes recreation area in utah so it was very specific that i had to shoot in a desert to show how barren the landscape is to show that nothing is growing there so that he could find this oasis in the desert. And that's a film that I, I couldn't have made living in New York City. Uh, another example would be Chief Serenby that I made while living in Atlanta, which is basically a stop-motion neorealist, Italian neorealist road movie, uh, which has no script, no straightforward narrative. It's a very loose narrative about a character or a hitchhiker just wandering around the city of Atlanta. And something like that, I, I could not have made in Utah unless I was in maybe Salt Lake City, but each one of those films is specific to a moment in my life. So that was exploring how I felt moving to a city I'd never been to where I knew nobody and what it was like to live there and kind of feel like you're just passing through and you don't have roots to this community or this area. Uh, so when I moved here to to Grand Junction, I started exploring uh, the Grand Mesa and the monument, and I realized that I would love to make this film that I, I shot called Thunder Rises uh, about wolf restoration and wolf conservation. So I shot that up on the mesa. And what I do is I, I go up there and explore, and I allow the landscape to kind of affect me and inform how the narrative goes as opposed to sitting down at home in front of my laptop and typing up a script and then trying to force that story onto the landscape. I like to allow the landscape to affect me and it allows me to improvise, which is something that animators almost never get to do because animation is a medium that you're supposed to have total control over. 
You know, it's interesting. You're talking about your creative process and how you're going up onto the Grand Mesa. And I feel like letting the creativity and the spark happen while you're up there. Can we dive a little bit deeper into the actual process? So you're up there on the Grand Mesa, you're hiking around. Does inspiration just hit you and you're like, all right, I know what I want to do for my next film. Or is it then you go back and, you know, work at your home studio and storyboard it all out? Like, what does that process look like for you? Yeah. It's a little bit of everything because I don't have a set process that I know is going to work the same every single time. Uh, So, for example, I I wrote a Western script while living in Montana, and it just made perfect sense because you're in Montana. You're in the West. How do you not write a traditional Western script? When you're in that landscape. Uh, so with this particular film, Thunder Rises, I had read an article in Outside Magazine about wolf conservation and how the government is managing to kind of appease both sides of biologists and scientists who want to reintroduce wolves into an area and also uh, appease ranchers and farmers who are kind of at odds with wolves because they want to protect their investments, their cattle. So I'd read that article that planted the seed for this story of what I wanted to tell. Next was finding where I was going to shoot it. And once I started exploring the Mesa, I thought, this is perfect. I did a little research into Colorado, and we do actually have reintroduced wolves here. So I thought, okay, it's going to be believable, and it's not going to stand out uh, that it's not believable because we do actually have reintroduced wolves in the state. Uh, And I just went up found some trails, found some locations, took photos, and thought, this is where I'm going to make the film. And then I would go back up there with the puppet and the character uh, and just shoot whatever I needed to based on the script that I had written. Can I ask, so after you do all of that, how long is that process to put it all together? Because you said you're literally taking it frame by frame and then putting it all together. And I don't know a ton about production of videos on the back end, but I would assume that would take a little bit of time. Yes. Animation is very time consuming. So this film is only about four minutes long. And it's if you're talking 24 frames per second, that's 24 frames per second times four minutes. Uh, So it's a close to about 20,000 photos or more because I also end up shooting more than what ends up in the final film, which is similar to live action shooting, uh, mainly because I I like to have what's called coverage so that when I'm editing, I can pick between a couple of different shots that I like. Uh, For example, up on the Mesa, the scene in which uh, the character interacts with this wolf, I got lucky. It it was not in the script, uh, but a storm came in and the sky just got really dark and ominous and then it rained for a few minutes and then the sun broke through the clouds and I was able to capture all of this on camera because I just told myself like continue shooting don't turn the camera off just keep animating during this and it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie and it's something that I didn't write in the script or imagine or anticipate so that was kind of one of those happy accidents that If I was in a studio, traditionally with animation, that never would have happened. So it does take a long time because it's such a slow process. You take a picture, you move the puppet, you take another picture. So I'll spend hours working on what ends up being four or five seconds. So it takes me months 
to shoot a film, and then about a year or two to finish everything, including sound design, editing, what's known as post-production. Um, so yeah. That, that's exhausting just listening to you. <laughs> um, well, so it, you obviously have a, a, a wide variety of skills, and I think um, you're you're perfect for CMU because our program is a little unique, I think, when you compare it to other film schools across the country. I mean, we're looking at animation, film, photography, and motion design within this program. How do all of those disciplines work together? How do they support one another? Do our students need all of that knowledge? They definitely do need all of it, which can sometimes be a little overwhelming. Uh, but when you follow industry trends, you start to see how closely all of these mediums are blending together now. Traditionally, film and animation schools would separate those majors and those programs, and you would just have a film school and you would just have an animation school. And those students would never interact with each other or collaborate. But now, if you watch a major Hollywood production, especially if it's a superhero movie or any of these big budget films like a James Bond film, a lot of that's going to be done on green screen or it's going to involve virtual production like The Mandalorian, where you have animators, special effects artists, designers, set designers working with live action filmmakers. And that's what I love about cinema is it really combines so many mediums together. And when I looked at CMU's program to come up here for the interview and, and when I applied for the position... I noticed that they taught film animation and photography in one degree. And I thought that is perfect because that was also my background. I had learned uh, black and white film photography in high school. And then I learned film at the Film Conservatory in New York. But my professors allowed me to do stop motion because to them, they didn't say, well, that's not film. It is film. It's all cinema. And then in my animation degree, I was able to use all of the skills that I learned in film school, such as cinematography, editing, sound design on those projects. And traditionally, that's what schools were not teaching. So animators wouldn't learn editing or cinematography. And filmmakers wouldn't learn anything about special effects or sometimes even sound design. So this, this program I thought was really cool that we get to teach all of that together and then the students get to network with each other because one might go into the, the live action film industry and then the other might go into animation and one day they're going to be collaborating with each other. And at the same time, I also really liked that we had a theater department because I, I used to teach acting as well to the animators, and that's something that I really encourage our students to take is one of the acting classes over there. And, and luckily, I've already been able to collaborate with the theater department on their production of She Kills Monsters to incorporate our students. It's really incredible when you think about as soon as these students get their degree, they can go out into the world and do a wide variety of things within this industry and even outside of it. But I'm wondering, when you think film and, you know, pitching these stories and your ideas, I imagine that there's a lot of uh, rejection that comes with it. Is that part of your classroom philosophy, like teaching? How do you how do you manage that? Yes, I definitely talk openly about when I submit films to festivals and how even at my stage or at this stage in my career where I've had films play at really big festivals like South by Southwest, I still get rejections. That still happens to every filmmaker, every animator, because sometimes it might just be the, the wrong venue for your film. 
Right now, my current film is grounded in reality. So if I submit it to a sci-fi film festival or a horror film festival, well, first off, I shouldn't be submitting to those. Like, you have to know your audience. And, and that's what we talk about in a lot of the animation and film courses and the photography courses in our program when they're seniors and developing their portfolios. Everyone has to do their research for where they're applying to. So, for example, if you compare two animation networks like Cartoon Network and Adult Swim, they're very different. Adult Swim is meant for an older, more mature audience, and Cartoon Network is much more family-friendly. And if you apply to one of those with a demo reel or show reel that's appropriate for the other one, then it's not a surprise that you're going to get rejection or you're not going to get a callback. So you really do have to do that research of where your work belongs. And so many other authors will write about this too, where they talk about finding your audience. And that's so important, especially today where there's so many niche markets because of the internet and so many other social media platforms that it's you no longer have just the too big theatrical distribution or television. Now there are hundreds of places to release your work. And it's just a matter of finding that audience. So switching gears just slightly, I would say here in Western Colorado, we are a cultural hub for Western Colorado. And so we have a lot of performing arts, whether that's theater, dance, we've got different art exhibits and museums. And I feel like more recently, we're starting to hear more about feature films that are being filmed here in Grand Junction and around the area. And I know that our WCCC students in the filmmaking program have got a lot of hands-on experience with those films. And I would assume some of your students have too. Can you talk to us about what are the opportunities here in Grand Junction, Colorado for a film student? Yeah, the opportunities here are definitely growing because I think people in the industry are starting to recognize Grand Junction as a viable place to shoot movies, make films. And it's it's not necessarily strange, but the connection to the community and a university is really important because when production companies look at who they are potentially going to hire, universities play a big part because they're going to look at whether we have a film program and if we've got qualified students, that we can say, yes, this student is going to be a great PA for you for three weeks or three days, depending on how long they want. Because not every production is going to fly out 100 employees or 1,000 employees from LA or New York City or Vancouver to this one little town. So it does really help our economy. Because they're looking at, okay, we can shoot there because there's two film programs. We've got WCCC and CMU's program, and they know they can count on those students. And then you just start building those relationships. And the more quality students they get on their projects, the more they're going to keep making films in this area. So it's, it, it just helps build our reputation. As a professional artist, what is it what is it like knowing that you're training, you know, the next generation to to go out into the world and create art that lasts, you know, a lifetime? Yeah. It's really exciting. Um it's also great to hear from students who I had years ago that we either follow each other on social media or they'll send me an email update about all the cool things they're doing or I get to see what they're working on now. So to know that they're also satisfied with their career is is really great. Um, to kind of go back to what you're asking before about rejection. So one particular student 
that I had. Uh, she started out working for, I believe it was just a small advertising company where she was photographing ladders. They, they were selling ladders, and this was in Minneapolis. And I remember she sent me an email saying how unhappy she was with this. And, and I said, you know, you do great work, but you just graduated. You can't expect that a, a, an art director is going to hand you a 20000 or a million-dollar Nike project. That's just too much responsibility. Like you have to put in the time, you have to work your way up in this industry. And she took that advice and she went and she continued building her portfolio and working on it. And I told her, I was like, you're not going to be photographing ladders the rest of your life. Use this as a stepping stone, right? You're not excited about this work, but how do you take this work and use it to your advantage. She built up her portfolio and now she lives in Austin, Texas, working for a much bigger advertising firm. And she's constantly posting about how much she loves her job now. And it just took that years of work and, you know, it's not necessarily rejection, but accepting that you're not going to go from college to a $150 million Marvel movie budget. Disney is just not going to hand that to you. Um, and so I think they slowly start to accept that, but it's also not the glamorous thing to say because we want to be able to say, oh, come to college and you're going to get your dream job. But the fine print is, well, that's going to take a really long time and a lot of hard work. I love that. It, you know, there's this whole process, you know, you have to learn, you have to put in your time. And with that, come, you know, with that experience comes this expertise. Yeah. And you, you obviously have it. I mean, you've done great things. And I think um, just... As a staff member, I'm happy that you're here oh, in, in Western you. Colorado and um, exciting things to come. So before we let you go today, I do have a question for you. You mentioned a couple of your films earlier, and maybe I'm assuming that your films are probably like your children where you can't choose your favorite, <laughs> but I'm going to ask you to choose yeah. your favorite yeah. out of your films. What is your favorite one and why? And then we'll take that another step out of all of the films you've ever seen mm. in your life. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite film and what do our listeners need to go and watch when they get done listening to this? Yeah, I would recommend Snowdiceus. Uh, it's a film I made in 2014. Uh, I was living in New York at the time. We got this huge snowstorm. So there was all this beautiful snow. And as a stop motion animator, I often collect a lot of random objects. And the justification is, oh, I'll use this in a movie one day, and then I don't. And then it just you just end up with a giant box or many boxes of lots of things. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take as many random stuff, objects out of these boxes and make a film with it. And I started out with an idea of just an astronaut walking through the snow with all this fresh snow. And then I realized I kind of had a story there. So that's one of those projects that didn't have a script. I didn't go into it with a story. But after looking at this footage of an astronaut walking through uh, the snow, I thought, this is really cool. I should turn it into a film. And so it's really a film that explores kind of this idea of feeling nostalgic for home and how na nostalgia also makes you vulnerable to this. And so I ended up using audio from some old home movies that I had so that my dad's voice is in the actual film. Um, and the film became really personal to me about this astronaut exploring this snowy landscape and hearing these home movies. And I, at the time, I didn't think it was my favorite film or my best work because I thought it was too personal and, and too abstract. And then it started getting into festivals and winning awards and people started recognizing it. And I remember talking to someone in the audience afterwards 
where one of the audio cues that I use uh, is from this old hobby horse that I that I got on Christmas as a child, where you'd put batteries in its stomach, and so it had this really like late '80s awful electronic horse sound (laughs) and someone in the audience who was a similar age to me recognized that noise and for them it also triggered this nostalgic feeling and they came up and talked to me afterwards and and that was something that I had completely overlooked thinking that I was the only one with that horse toy of course it was mass produced of course other people would have it so it was really great to make that connection so now when I think about it um, I actually I think my favorite is Snowdiceus and I wish at the time I had promoted it more because I didn't think people would be able to connect with it but it has had a really great sort of afterlife uh, because it came out in 2014 it, uh, I, I sort of re-released it for the anniversary of the moon landing, and I recolored it and, and made a black and white version to mimic the moon landing footage. And because of that, it ended up, um, some of the photographs were printed from that and presented in an exhibit in the Las Cruces uh, Space Festival, because Las Cruces, New Mexico, there's a lot of space hubs down there. And so they wanted that for their space festival. One of those photos is now hanging right now in the city hall, the Grand Junction City Hall. It's part of their exhibit. So it's sort of taken on this new life seven years after I made it. I love that because it's this connection to people. You know, I mean, we talk about with the arts that. It, arts connect people. It has this, you know, this power to it. And a lot of times we talk about, you know, theater or music, but then, you know, film is such a big one too. And, and photography and just how, yeah, you can relate, you relate to people through your art. And what about your favorite feature film in general? So that's not your work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the one that's maybe had the most influence on me is the original 1968 Planet of the Apes or potentially Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park 1993, uh, because I was eight when that movie came out, and I must have seen it in theaters eight or nine times, which also means my mom saw it eight or nine times, because it is, I'm pretty sure it's PG-13, so she would have had to take me to it every time I wanted to see it. So Planet of the Apes, original Planet of the Apes, and Jurassic Park, yeah. Great. Both really good answers. That's why you're in Western Colorado, the, the dinosaur yes, connection. Yes, it's dinosaur country <laughs> out here, too. And Planet of the Apes it was shot in uh, Lake Powell, Arizona, Utah, and it was also shot, the Forbidden Zone is shot uh, in Grand Canyon. So uh. I've, I've gone out there with some Planet of the Apes toys and photographed them in the actual Forbidden Zone. So, yeah. That's perfect. You're in the right spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for being here with us today. It was a great conversation. And um, I, yeah, I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you. This is the See Me Now podcast. You can listen to any of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.